Hi, Nick Petrella here. This episode is sponsored by Volkwein's Music, a full-service shop that's been meeting the musical needs of musicians for over 135 years. They offer a huge selection of instruments, accessories, music, and more. They also have an unmatched instrument repair department with some of the most experienced technicians in the business. For years, they've serviced my personal and school instruments, and their attention to detail is why I and professional musicians from around the globe trust Volkwein's to service their gear. Head over to volkweinsmusic.com to see what they can do for you. That's V-O-L-K-W-E-I-N-S music.com. Helping people discover music since 1888. Welcome to the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast, making art work. We highlight how entrepreneurs align their artistry, passion, and vision to create and pursue opportunities to capture value in the arts. The views expressed by guests on the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the podcast or its hosts. The appearance of a guest on the podcast, the venture they represent, or reference to any product or service does not imply an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast or its hosts. The content provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute business advice. Here are your hosts, Andy Heiss and Nick Petrella. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Nick Petrella. And my name is Andy Heiss. Those familiar with classical music will recognize Joanne Folletta's name. She's been the music director of the Buffalo Philharmonic for 20 years and has been a guest conductor in orchestras around the world. She's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and is a strong proponent of teaching the next generation of musicians. Joanne is a multiple Grammy Award winner and has many more accolades, so we'll link to her lengthy bio in the show notes. I had the pleasure of working with her at the Sunflower Music Festival this year, and I'm very happy she agreed to be on the podcast. Joanne, thanks for joining us. Thank you, and thank you for, for working with us in the Sunflower Music Festival. That was a real treat for me, too. This is part one of our interview with Joanne Folletta. So we'd like to begin by having our interviewees tell the listeners a little about themselves. So what would you like them to know about Joanne Folletta? Well, maybe just the simplest thing, and and that is that um, at this point in my life, I feel like I'm living my dream uh, of a seven-year-old, you know, who entered the music world, as, as most of us do as musicians, right? Uh, Nick, where, where we start when we're very little and, and we fall in love with music, uh, as I did. And um, I feel that I have uh, one of the most beautiful jobs in the world. I mean, the opportunity to conduct an orchestra, uh, not only your own orchestra, which becomes a part of who you are, but, but guest conducting as well. So um, it's, it's been a wonderful, wonderful life in music, and, and I feel very fortunate. And your training is in classical guitar, correct? Yes, I started out as a classical guitarist. Actually, on my seventh birthday, uh, my father bought me a very small but beautiful classical guitar, and he arranged for a teacher to come the next day. And that was the beginning. I mean, I think that that uh, that was my first step into a world that, of course, I could never imagine. But but um, it was the rest of my life starting on that day, and I fell in love with the classical guitar and. 
And uh, those who play guitar will know what I'm saying. I mean, I, I loved, I love the way uh, the the strings felt under my fingers, um, uh, the fragrance of the wood, holding the guitar in your arms. Uh, I just fell in love with it and um, became became a musician on that day, although I didn't know it. Uh, but yeah. and then it led to other another path in conducting. But um, but it was all because of the guitar. Yeah, and that's that's kind of my follow up question: is um, when did you know you wanted to become a conductor? Well, I became so involved in music and playing, practicing and playing the guitar all the time and listening to recordings that my parents started to take my sister and myself to concerts. And we, I grew up in New York City, so we went to Carnegie Hall a lot and there were lots of you know, free concerts and, and uh, easy ways to listen to music. And I, I remember very clearly one concert, I think I was 11, at Carnegie, uh, listening to the Beethoven Symphony Number no. 6 for the first time. And feeling something I couldn't define, but feeling like that that was where where I had to be. I had to be in the middle of that orchestra. And, you know, Andy is kind of funny when I think, look back at it. Uh, I wasn't thinking that I wanted to be a violinist or a flutist. I, I wanted to be Leopold Stokowski, who happened to be the mm-hmm. man conducting that I didn't know how famous he was then. But, but I wanted to be him because in a way I felt he was enabling those people to make something beautiful happen. I didn't know how he was doing it. But but I knew that he was a catalyst in a way, and, and that's what I wanted to do. I told my parents they were not musicians, and I think they were mystified by the whole thing. But, but from that day in, in Carnegie Hall, that was my dream, to be a conductor. Yeah, that's a great story. In your biography, you note that when you were appointed as music director of the Buffalo Philharmonic, you became the first woman to lead a major American ensemble. What was that like, and why do you think it took so long to have a woman at the helm? Well, you know, I think I, I didn't concentrate on it very much because I had been conducting, and and of course I realized, uh, I finally realized when I went into the conservatory that there weren't many women conducting. I mean, that was the first time I, I understood that this was something uh, that was going to be maybe more of an uphill climb than I thought because I, I hadn't been aware of it. Um so I didn't pay too much attention to it, but I did realize that it, that coming into Buffalo, following people like Lucas Foss and Michael Tilson Thomas and uh, um, uh, Cripps, Joseph Cripps and, and William Steinberg, this was, a, this was a very big, big assignment. So um, it was a little daunting, but uh, uh, by that point, I, I was so, um, so living in this world. And I, I think that, that, it's understandable, I suppose, that, that people are surprised or were surprised then by a woman on the podium uh, because it's, it, whenever we think about a conductor, even now I ask people and they think of someone like Leonard Bernstein or, or Herbert von Karajan, this all-powerful male figure, um, which was what a conductor was, Toscanini. And, and um, it wasn't until uh, women started entering other fields as leaders at the door slowly opened in the world of classical music. And again, I have to say classical music is, um, is a very, very traditional field. So the change took a long time. I mean, for maybe even 50 or 60 years ago, there weren't many women in orchestras. So, um, it, it, it's, it's changed slowly. And, and now I think it's opening up even more. So how much do you engage in audience development and how do you begin thinking about uh, building new audiences for classical music? We're, I'm constantly thinking about that. We are constantly thinking about it. And, and it's, it's not 
you know, you might say it's just a self-take. It's, it's not really that. It's to sure. share what we do with other people because we know as musicians, and both of you know as musicians, that that this is something so extraordinary. It's like our heritage. It's, it's, it's a way of finding out who we are. It's a way of connecting with other people. We want to give that gift. We want to share that gift with everyone. So audience development is, is, is part of what we think about every day. And actually, it's a great joy for me because, uh, you know, being on the podium, working with the musicians, of course, is at the center of what I do. But, but talking to people about music, uh, visiting people, going into schools, going into groups of people, uh, speaking from the stage, explaining a piece of music, encouraging people to try something new. Uh, that's a great joy. And when someone comes backstage and says to me, and it's quite common, uh, this is my first concert, and I never thought I would like it. And I was overwhelmed by the sound. I was just overwhelmed. And I, I can't explain what I was feeling, but I was feeling a fantastic freedom or a fantastic sense of, of memory of, of something. And uh, that's worth everything. When, when you open the window for someone to realize that this music is for me, why haven't I discovered it before? Sure. Let's take a quick break. If you're hearing this, you have a deeper-than-usual interest in music and musicians. Craft Brood Music is a curated streaming service that was created for you. It's the app that streams better music for serious listeners, and we split our income with the artists. Download the app at the App Store or Google Play and try a free two-week trial. Or check out the Craft Brood Music Podcast, a deeper exploration of this music and these artists, available wherever you listen. more at craftbrewedmusic.com. You're active as a conductor and mentor to students at institutions such as Brevard and the Cleveland Institute of Music. How do you guide students to prepare for a conducting career in an era that has seen orchestras fight for their very existence, even prior to the pandemic? Well, I think when I speak with young people who are thinking about conducting, I want to be sure that they are um, they are thinking of it in the right way. What's their goal about being a conductor? Because sometimes it may seem from the outside to be very glamorous, to be very powerful, and absolutely uh, the opposite is true. I mean, it's a tremendous amount of commitment and work and study and uh, not always very glamorous and, and very difficult. So, so uh, if that young person is completely dedicated to music and to studying and to spending their lives in a score... Uh, that's the first step. And then helping them understand how to grow as a musician and how to, to accept and understand that, that becoming a conductor is a lifelong process. You know, you don't get to the point where you say, okay, now I have my degree and I'm ready for anything. That your career is, is, is developing day by day. The, your road of life is unfolding ahead of you. You don't know where it's going to take you, but... Um, you have to be a kind of person who is living that way and thinking that way, constantly studying. And there are many young people who do that. 
and then helping them understand what an orchestra is and how to work with the gifted people in an ensemble in 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 their own special way. Yeah, I I think most conductors are the first ones there and the last ones to leave. And sometimes they have to move chair. Well, in certain, certain uh, circumstances, they're moving chairs and that's right. No. And like, you know, they, they set, right. set the plan for the stage setup and just like the whole, you know, working on the program and typing up the program, printing the pro right. There's all these administrative things that in most orchestras in the U S probably um, the conductor is probably overseeing a lot of that. That's right. Oh, I remember that. I mean, I remember going in into Manhattan to pick up the music and dragging it home for the rehearsals and, and getting there early and setting up the chairs, all the things you mentioned. Uh, but it was so worth it for the privilege of being in the middle of this team of musicians and learning from them. And, and of course, hearing the music around you is incredible. So people have to understand it's not, it's not a, a glamorous profession that, that, that it, uh, it might seem. Uh, but it it's the most beautiful place to live, frankly. Living in those scores is the most beautiful place I can imagine. Yeah. And I think that's it's probably very good uh, experience, and it's probably made you empathetic looking back when you were starting out, when you were the de facto musician, or no, excuse me, when you were the de facto uh, librarian or the stagehand when you're helping out, when you were just starting out. I mean, you're, you're far from that now, but... But it it probably helps you to understand what they go through when a yeah. when the parts don't arrive on time or when there's something going on 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 stage or with the rigging or something. You are right, and it helps you understand always the complexity of bringing an orchestra together, even just musically. The idea that there may be eighty people on that stage, all playing a different instrument, all with different backgrounds, different training, different personalities, different characters, different uh, levels of, of ability, uh, different imagination, somehow bringing all that together. I think that's psychologically the most difficult thing that a conductor comes to understand is the, yeah. the, the gifted people around them, that team, and how to inspire them and engage them and get everyone on the same page. And so as you've mentioned, you do a lot of guest conducting for orchestras all around the world. How do those engagements come to be? Do you have an agent or is it just based on your reputation? People know who you are or is there some other way that those that those things happen? And how does it technically work? Are you are you like are you like set up as your own business, your own sort of entity or um, and how do you contract with those organizations? So both the macro view, how do you get the gigs and then the micro view, how does that work? Uh, well, I, I do have a manager, and I think that at a certain point that became um, really necessary and very important for me. I mean, I certainly when I was a student, no one was going to manage me, and, and when I first started, uh, that wasn't possible. But but with a manager, I don't have to worry about um, about finding work or even discussing things uh, like salary or hours or how many concerts. So the manager takes care of all of that, and uh, that's been wonderful. But it does mean that unusual things pop up, like two weeks of concerts in Spain or two weeks of concerts in China that that I had not even been imagining uh, that happened. But um, but it's it's great to work with a manager who cares about you and understands, uh, you know, understands what what this work means to you. 
Uh, and I am, I did at some point incorporate myself, and that was only because I was working uh, with orchestras as an independent contractor, and that, that made things easier. I mean, so I'm a corporation of one, but, but it's just for, you know, for this sort of uh, tax purposes and how that works. But um, uh, it, it's complicated. There are lots of moving parts, but, um, but in the end, it comes down to that, that uh, relationship in rehearsals and concerts with the musicians. Sure. So that relationship you have with your manager who, who, um, like you said, knows you and really understands you, uh, and how you like to work. Uh, how long is that really, have you had that relationship with the manager? Well, I've had several managers. The one that I'm working with now, which is Opus three, um, it has been maybe, uh, 10 years now. And okay. it's, and it's been a very, very good relationship. You know, it's been sure. a relationship where, where, uh, again, they're offering possibilities or, or trying to to understand what what you especially like to do. For instance, this past summer, um, they came up with this wonderful festival that was happening in Kansas, where I've never never worked in Topeka, Kansas. <laughs> but this particular year, it was dedicated to women composers, and they knew I had a special interest in that. You know, from my days of conducting the Women's Philharmonic. And they brought the idea to me and saying, would you be interested in going to 10 days in Topeka? Because it's a, it's a celebration, a delayed celebration of the, the 19th Amendment. Um, right. And it's incredible repertoire, you know, that, yeah. that you will find very interesting. So, so them knowing that about me helped that happen. And it really was a great experience. Sure. What are some of the activities you do as a music director that weren't addressed in music school? And how much of what you do would you say is entrepreneurial? Oh, a great deal is entrepreneurial. You know, and I have to say much of what I do, I never addressed in music school. It just was never talked about. Now, maybe that, that is a little different now. But in Juilliard, it was, was never discussed. Things that I do regularly now, like spend time with the marketing director, talking about strategies of how to group concerts in, in packages or what the concert should be named or is this piece a little bit difficult for, for the general audience and, you know, or what soloist is going to, to be very attractive to, uh, you know, a new, a new audience base. That's a lot of time spent there. Development, which is a, a, an area in which we raise money, and uh, I spend a tremendous amount of time doing that. And and that um, is something I really love to do because it enables me to share with people who are empathetic what we're doing and why we're making this recording or why we're going to do a Rachmaninoff festival um, and to get them excited about it. I mean, they're, they're not physically in, as part of that festival, but they become emotionally and mentally, uh, you know, very much a part of it by helping us make that dream a reality. Uh, working with musicians in terms of scheduling, in terms of uh, union regulations, all of these things that really never came up. <laughs> you only have learned them on the job. Uh, no one talks about them. I mean, I'm hoping now that in music schools they may have some courses that discuss um, uh, life as a musician, or you know uh, how 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 one forges, how one is an op- entrepreneur. Because I always tell young people who are music students, uh, when you graduate, your journey begins, but you have to sketch out that blueprint. I mean, you have to draw that. No one is going to draw it for you. And they look terrified. And I say, well, actually, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of it because when you're drawing the blueprint, 
you can make something very special for yourself. I mean, you can say, okay, I love to teach too, so I'm going to make time for teaching in there, or I'm really still interested in jazz and I want that to be a part of my life. So you can create your own life, uh, but you have to be your own entrepreneur. Yeah, that that's great. We It's how we kind of think about it too. Uh, by by helping students know about these things, it's it's empowering, right? Uh, exactly like you said, trying to take some of that fear out of the unknown and rather embracing the unknown as as you mentioned. Right, right. And there is a little bit of fear because, you know, it's it's uh, it's so different from, let's say, a friend of theirs who, who uh, became an accountant and got a CPA and knew what the steps were. I mean, the steps are so right. defined. Uh, or going to medical school and, and, you know, going to become a resident and all of this. The steps are defined. For a musician, the first step, none of the steps are, are defined. So... So that's freeing, but it's also terrifying. So I try and help them uh, understand that having control of your life is a good thing and also encourage a tremendous open-mindedness because, you know, having grown up in New York City, so many of my friends, even musical friends said, well, we're never going to leave New York City. We'll never leave. This is where we grew up and this is where everything is happening. Yes, a lot of things are happening in New York City. But my first job was in Denver, and I'm so glad I went there. I learned so much about music. I lived in Milwaukee. I lived in Norfolk, Virginia. I lived in San Francisco. I mean, so these were wonderful places that if I hadn't been willing to do that, uh, would never have happened. So I try and help them keep an open mind and, and realize that, you know, the part of the blueprint is that you have a big eraser on it. If something doesn't <laughs> work out, you shift, you shift your path and, uh, and it's constantly changing and it can be exciting. It can really be exciting for them. Well, and that's, that's an interesting point too. The blueprint is with pencil, right? Not, Absolutely. Not can, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. <laughs> this concludes part one of our interview with Joanne Folletto. We hope you'll join us next week for part two. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Visit artsentrepreneurshippodcast.com to learn more about our guest and how you can help support artists, the arts, and this podcast. Podcast.